We are going to be primarily coming out of Philippians chapter 3, starting in 15. We're going to blaze a trail all the way through chapter 4, verse 9. But before we do that, we're going to pray, because we're not writing a book report this morning. We're not interested in information. We want nothing short of radical transformation that only comes through revelation by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. Uh, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for desiring us. We thank you for sending your Son. And we thank you for sending your Spirit. And right now, that's what we ask, that through the reading of your scriptures, we would know you better, and as a result of knowing you better, we would know ourselves better and who you created us to be. And as a result of knowing that, we would be able to answer the question why you put us here. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So the, for the past three weeks of, as a church, we've been going through a letter that a man named Paul wrote to a church he planted in a place called Philippi. And I'm gonna be honest, as a church, we are not unique in doing this. Uh, Paul's letters have been the foundation of sermons since he wrote them some 2,000 years ago. They are the earliest writings about our faith, and they establish some of the bedrock, foundational principles about who we are as a family. Because make no mistake about it, Paul's language is family. God is our father, we are his children, we have an inheritance. These are family words. He also is very clear in his writings that without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith is worthless. And he has some of the greatest one-liners in our family history, saying things like, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's gotten book titles and song titles and sermon titles. To live is Christ, to die is gained. He, he writes these things, and we go, wow, those are big, deep, theological, transformational things. So churches have studied these since the day he wrote them. But not everybody loves Paul. Uh, in fact, Paul is somewhat controversial. And one of the reasons he's controversial is he writes with a little bit of attitude. Uh, some people would call it arrogant or aggressive. In one of his letters to a church he planted at Corinth, he says, look, I would love to talk to you about spiritual stuff, but I can't because you're weak and immature. He says, you've known about this guy, Jesus, for a long time, but you refuse to grow up. You're still babies. So I give you milk instead of meat. Once you start acting like you know Jesus instead of acting like you did before you knew him, we can have real talk. But for now, go sit in the corner and have time out and enjoy your milk. So he, you can tell some people, they read that, and they're kind of like, hmm. Can Paul be writing under the Spirit when he just lays it out like that? So they, they don't necessarily love how aggressive he is sometimes. And I'm going to be honest, Paul can be very confusing. He writes on things about head coverings and worship and makes confusing statements about marriage and singlehood and church roles and all kinds of things, things that there have been no consensus on for some 2,000 years, things that people take out of context and weaponize over and over and over again. And so since he's confusing, people don't have any idea what to do with him. And it's not new. That didn't just start happening. This is what Peter had to say about Paul's writings while he was still alive. He says, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom God gave me. He says, our brother Paul, whom I love, writes to you about these things, about patience and salvation. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of them in these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, 
which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. So we see even in the first century, while Paul is still alive, Peter says, hey, I get it. When you read Paul's letters, some things are hard to understand. And when it's hard to understand, people are gonna take them out, they're gonna twist them for their own benefit on their way to destruction because they twist what Paul has written. So when we have Paul, we have a very complicated author. We have somebody that has the theological depth and foundation upon which we base our faith. But it's also mixed in with this brazenness that borders the verge of arrogance, where he tells you what it is unapologetically and at times is so confusing that over 2,000 years, some of his sentences still don't have a consensus opinion on what they mean. And taking all that together, I still don't think that's the reason we find Paul so difficult and confusing. One of my jobs this morning is to try to convince you that one of the reasons we water down Paul's statements to get our mind around them, we change and don't take what he's written at face value, is because his picture of God is so big and so large and so magnificent that we often believe he's speaking in hyperbole and try to water it down to fit it into our experience. That we look at what he's written and we say, God can't possibly be that good or that powerful or that amazing because that's not what I experience. And what I experience must be true and Paul can't be lying, so I have to play mental gymnastics in an effort to make what Paul has said reconcile with what I experience. And the best example we're gonna have of this is a snippet from the passage that we're gonna discuss this morning. We're gonna kind of ironically begin at the end where we will land, where Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say it, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're here for the first time this morning, that may be the first time that you've heard that passage. But if you grew up in church, you have heard that passage 1.6 million times. You have colored little handouts with that passage on it. That is one of those tent pole passages that we look at and we preach and we love because it says, hey, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then you rejoice always. And you have confidence because the Lord is near and the peace that pervades your life will eclipse all understanding. Paul writes that if you agree that Jesus is the son of God, then this is what should characterize your life. And we go, heck yeah, let me sign up for some of that. And a lot of us do sign up for that. And we go, yes, Jesus, I do believe you are who you say you are. And I do believe you did what you claim to have done. Let me get some of that joy, confidence, and peace. And then we are very confused when we don't get that joy, confidence, and peace. Because I would say the vast majority of you that are listening to me today would say that you agree that Jesus is who he says he is. But if I stood right outside that door and I said, put a dollar in my hand, if the joy, peace, and confidence that Paul describes does not pervade your life, and I'll give you a dollar if it does, I would make enough money to feed my family of seven for at least three days. 
I would leave a more wealthy man than I came in. Because for the vast majority of us, that is not what we experience. We don't rejoice always. And even though we know the Lord is near, sometimes he doesn't feel near, so we don't have that confidence. And we don't have a peace that transcends understanding. I would say we have a peace that is perfectly understandable. Because when good things happen to us, we have peace, and when bad things happen to us, we don't. Which is perfectly understandable, because guys, that's how, that's how we approach life. Which is logical, and reasonable, and makes sense. If somebody asks you how your day is going, there are two possible answers. One is fine, because you just want to end the conversation. The other is this instinctive mental calculus. If you're going to answer the question honestly, there's this instinctive mental calculus that takes place. You go, how is my day? And if more good things happen to you than bad things, then your day is good. But if more bad things happen to you than good things, your day is bad. Ouch, I stubbed my toe. I'm having a bad day. But I found $20 later that afternoon. Day's looking up. Oh, my alarm didn't go off and I am late to class. Depending on who your instructor is, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. I'll let you decide. But oh, I got some extra credit in my math class. That's always a good thing. Day's looking up. Good things happening equal good days. Bad things happening equal bad days. And this is how you and I take inventory of our lives, which is completely and absolutely understandable. Because bad things make me feel bad, and good things make me feel happy. And this is transferable. It's how we measure weeks, it's how we measure months, and it's how we measure years. Every December 30th, December 31st, you probably drive in your car, or maybe you'll sit down and be attentional about it, will take kind of a feelings inventory over the last year. And if your health diagnosis were good, you had a good year, if you got a promotion, or if you had more money in your bank account than you did last year, or if your children obeyed better than they did last year, or your grades were better than they were the year before, then you had a good year. And if they weren't, you post things like, hey, I'm glad this year's in the rear view mirror. This was a terrible year. Looking forward to 2024. Because that is how we measure our lives. And it is completely logical and completely understandable, and Paul absolutely hates it. He rips that to shreds in the chapter right before we'll begin. In the beginning of chapter three, there's some people that evidently have said, hey, I have a lot of confidence in my accomplishments. I have a lot of confidence in the good things that I've both done and that have happened to me. And Paul says, oh yeah, you've got reasons to be confident? Well, here's my list, and it far eclipses your list. He says, I'm better than you in this way. I've had more success than you in this way. I know more than you in this way. I'm better than you in this way. And you know what? It's all trash. And I'm only using that word because there's kids in the audience. He is much more descriptive and shocking in his terms. He says, all the things you put your hope in, all the things you define yourself by are absolute refuse, garbage, worthless when compared to knowing Jesus. He lights the way you and I approach our lives on fire, saying you are not defined by your failures and successes. You are not defined by your skills and talents. You are not defined by the good or the bad that happens to you. You have a defining moment in your life. 
It is the day that our Savior allowed himself to be murdered and then three days later refused to stay dead. He says, this is how you approach your life. And this is how we are called to approach our lives. Because what he made was a huge, difficult statement. Rejoice always. Be confident the Lord is near. You have peace that passes understanding. And our temptation to water that down is to say things like, well, this world is imperfect. I'm not experiencing consistent joy, but I know when I die, I go to heaven, and that's full of joy. So Paul must be talking about the next life. Or I say things like, oh man, it's impossible for me to have peace here when my life is going this way. But I know when I walk into the presence of the Prince of Peace, then I will have peace because I'm in Jesus' presence. So we take that big statement that he's written, we water it down, and we use it for the next life. But the problem is Jesus and Paul didn't leave us that option. Jesus was very clear throughout his life. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's now. It's in front of you. It is not at some later date that you experience this. The kingdom of heaven has made his appearance. And Paul exemplifies this. This man is beaten, hit with rocks and left for dead, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, the subject of multitude of murder plots. He writes half his letters from prison where he says weird things like, hey, I am laughing while I'm in these chains and singing praises to God. Because because I'm in prison, the gospel is advanced. So according to his example and Jesus' mouth, this is not for some future date. We don't have the option to water it down. We can ask the question, why does he get to experience it? I don't. And that forces us to deal with the fact that this statement is meant to be taken at face value. So let's ask the question. Why does Paul get to experience this during his life, and we don't. Because while we measure what happens to us in good and bad by the day, Paul has a diff very different way of measuring his life. He rejects the instinct that we have and instead writes this in Philippians chapter two. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. He found himself in appearance of a man and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. The simplest way I can put it is this. We don't reach the destination that Paul did because we don't start at the point that he does. For him, the defining moment in human history is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And everything he experiences is washed through that. Jesus leaving heaven at great expense to himself so that we could join him. You realize that when we go to heaven, we don't add anything to it, right? That it's perfect without us there. That he leaves perfect heaven to come down to considerably less perfect earth. Ultimately lives the last three years of his life homeless and allows himself to be murdered. And Paul says our attitude should be just like 
his, who despite being God, did not leverage his great advantage for his own benefit. Instead, humbled himself, picked up a cross, and walked willingly to his execution. Paul says we will not get the joy, confidence, and peace in chapter four without embracing the attitude in chapter two. So while you and I are married to our mental calculus of how we measure good and bad days, we should have no expectation of a peace that transcends all understanding. And Paul is not treading new ground here. He is simply repeating what Jesus himself says. Matthew records Jesus saying this to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus clearly says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to follow me. I laid a template for you. I laid my power down, I picked that cross up, and I laid down my life at the request of the Father. And if you are to be called mine, you will do the same thing. We all know this, but that's another statement that we really, really, really want to water down. Because our natural inclination is to try to take the sacrifice of Jesus and fit it into our lives. Instead of looking at the sacrifice of Jesus and allowing it to redefine how we see existence. Every single one of you in kindergarten played follow the leader. The simplest game in the universe because the instructions are in the title. No one ever asks, follow the leader? How do I play that? What are the rules of this game called follow the leader? No one in the history of the world has ever asked what the rules of follow the leader are because everybody knows. If the leader goes on the balance beam, where do you go? The balance beam. If the leader goes on the swings, you're on those swings. When the leader tries to lose you and climb to the top of the jungle gym, you look at him or her and scoff. You will not lose me by going on this jungle gym, for I am equal to this task. And you climb to the top of that jungle gym and you win the game because you have successfully followed the leader. However, if the leader goes to the top of the jungle gym and you go to the baseball diamond, you have now lost. It doesn't matter what good reason you had for going to the baseball diamond. Well, I saw my friend I hadn't seen in a while over there. Or you know that $20 I referenced earlier? That's why I found it on the baseball diamond. The person who was the leader goes, oh yeah, I get that, you lost. And follow the leader, you either get to follow the leader or not follow the leader. You don't get to invent this third option where you don't go where the leader goes and claim that you're following the leader. And this is what is laid out before us. And I'm going to be exceptionally redundant on this point. And you're going to send me emails saying, you made me late to Panera because you kicked this horse. But I'm going to beat this horse to death to convince you that this is what our leader has asked of us. Mark records it this way. He says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And again, this is not the only time this is recorded. Luke records it like this. 
Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. He pulls all his disciples together and says, I got a secret. The people that say they love God, they're about to kill me. But don't worry about it. I'm not going to stay dead. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to do the same thing I did. Unless you think I'm just copying different accounts of the same conversation. Luke again records this. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So you say, hey, if you are my disciple, you carry your cross. And Luke says, hey, if you refuse to carry the cross, you are not my disciple. Matthew says it like this. We hate this one. We despise this one. Anyone who loves their father or more than, mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That passage forces us to examine how we respond to the sacrifice God has made. Because Jesus and Paul are claiming you cannot look at the greatest good that has ever existed, at the most powerful, most majestic, most loving being that has ever existed, laying down his life, allowing himself to be beaten and murdered and bloody and hung on a stick of wood and have your response go, oh, that's pretty cool. I hope my day goes well today. The only rational response to the Savior, the eternal being of Jesus Christ being nailed to a cross is the abdication of all earthly goals and the laying down of one's life. The reorienting of everything you experience. He then becomes your primary relationship. It's not that you don't love your spouse or your children. It's that given in light of his sacrifice, in light of the great gift that he has given, the primary objective in your life becomes to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. And this is what Paul says. In light of the magnificence of Jesus Christ, that is the only rational response. And this is why Paul writes about such a big God that we have a difficulty understanding. Because he starts in a very different place than you and I start. He starts with the laying down of his life and the taking up of his cross while we're doing mental calculus trying to figure out if we had a good day or a bad day. And according to the mouth of Jesus Christ, that is not how we should look at things. We should look at them as Paul does because now we can understand what he writes in his letters. And so with that having been established, we dig into chapter three, verse 15. All of us then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. I love that. Did you, that's, that's what turns some people off to Paul. Did you hear the lack of compromise in that? He says, look, we've clearly established that your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. And putting confidence in your triumphs and your tragedies is foolishness. And if you are mature, you will agree with me. But look what he says next. And if on some point you think differently, or if, if you disagree with me, don't worry, God will fix you soon. 
That's what he says. He says, if you're mature, you agree with me. If you're not, don't worry. God's, humble, God's humility is on the way. He's gonna smack you into submission. <laughs> Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He says, look at our example. Look at what we have decided to do. We have laid down our lives. We have taken up our crosses. Watch that and do the same. Look at the example you have in Christ Jesus. Take on the attitude that you have seen us take on, those of us who have laid down our lives. For as I have often told you before now, and again tell you even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is their destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. He says, this is the new pattern. When you live for yourself, when you live desiring only good things, when you live with that mental calculus that today was good because I won and tomorrow might be bad because I lost, your God is your stomach and your mind is set on earthly things. He says the new pattern is not to be defined, not to have your existence defined by the things that happen to you or your wins and your losses, but to follow the example of the one who came down and pursued you. He continues and says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. He says, we're not from here anymore. He says, our future is secure by one who wasn't from here who will one day collect us to go be with him. So since we aren't from here, let's stop living like we are. We no longer hold in estimation our lives the way we once did. Our God is no longer our stomachs. Our desire is no longer earthly. We've been transformed by the realization that came with the great sacrifice that Jesus gave. So live like it. Live like you know God. He continues, saying, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the way of the Lord, Dear friends, he says, your life should not be characterized by the duplicity and double-mindedness that comes with simply defining good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks, good months and bad months. Stand firm because you know your future is secure. Stand firm because you know your life is defined by the pivotal event that we call the crucifixion and the resurrection and not by things out of your control. And once we understand that, then we can read these huge statements at face value. And we don't water them down. Instead, we accept them. When he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Our joy and our peace and our confidence is not derived from the good and bad things that happen to us. That is a peace that is perfectly understandable. Our joy and our confidence 
And our peace is derived from the fact that our good and powerful king sits on the throne. Always. And that will never change. So we are no longer subject to the whims of good days and bad days. Because we are defined by his sacrifice and his greatness and his love and his majesty and the gift that we now get to call the greatest being that has ever existed, our Father. Paul summarizes this section by writing, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. He summarizes by telling us, we should not expect the joy and the confidence and the peace that he writes about in chapter 4 without embracing the attitude that he exemplifies in chapter 2, which makes perfect sense. Because the promises in chapter 4 are relational to the attitude and the response in chapter two. The peace and joy and confidence comes from seeing Jesus as he truly is, not a means to an end, but as the absolute peak of love and power in the universe. And when we have this version of a God big enough to lay down our lives instead of fit into our lives, that is when we can look at these statements by Paul and take them at face value and not say, well, my peace will come once I die, because it will. But your peace is inextricably attached to how you view Jesus in this life. And we're scared of that. Because if I lay down my life Jesus might ask me to do some crazy things like move to a foreign country and live in a hut without AC. And he might. I'm not going to be presumptuous enough to speak for Jesus. But I can speak confidently that he's not going to ask all of us to do that because nobody goes into tribal missions for money. And we're still going to need some lawyers and some baristas and some school teachers to pay for tribal missions. So there's a good chance he's not going to take you out of your current occupation but he's going to ask you to serve and sacrifice for him inside your current occupation. And he's gonna change your life from the sum of the good or bad that happens to you to the glory of the one who gave all for you. And that even in that, you can find a joy and a peace that transcends understandings, that is confusing to those who still think on earthly things. Because those of us that say who Jesus is, those of us that believe that Jesus is who he says he is, are no longer tossed to and fro by the things that happened to us. Instead, we're grounded in the compassion and the promise of the one who gave it all and who asks us to follow his example in laying down our desires and picking up our cross. 
This is a difficult decision and it's advantageous to talk about it. We have some fine men and women that will be up here following service that would love to pray with you. Figure out what that looks like. Figure out what it looks like to lay down your selfish desires and take up your cross. And they would love to talk to you following this service. And I leave you with just the thought that Paul left us with. Do not expect the peace that passes understanding in chapter four without the embracing of the attitude that he describes in chapter two. Do not attempt to get the peace that comes with knowing God without walking through the path that he has laid out before you. There are no no shortcuts to where we're trying to go. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for being with us. And we thank you for sending your son when we didn't deserve it. We ask now by the power of your spirit that we be given the strength to lay down our lives, that we no longer hold on to them as if we can do a better job with them than you can, but instead we give to you what is already yours. Our lives are already yours because of the great sacrifice you've given. Let us only give to you what you have already saved. Let us quit looking at it as a sacrifice to lay down our lives and instead a radical but logical response to the greatness that is you. We ask for nothing short of radical transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.